Old Testament Character Podcast 60 on Mephibosheth. As we'll see, though Mephibosheth is a minor character in the Bible, that doesn't mean that he's not important. There's much to learn about this man. Today I had my physical. The doctor gave me a clean bill of health. I've got some minor issues, but considering my age, nothing to complain about. When we meet those who are less fortunate, maybe those who are physically disabled, we tend to have a different perspective on our own complaints, our medical complaints and our vocal complaints. After the physical, I went to the cemetery simply to get more perspective and to pray. I'm one of those people who actually um, finds it's easier to concentrate when there are constant reminders of the shortness of life all around me. Perspective is certainly needed. Now, Mephibosheth is a son of Jonathan, Jonathan the friend of David. And Jonathan, of course, is Saul's son, so Mephibosheth is King Saul's grandson. And we're going to learn about him after the death of Saul. Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. He's mourned in the beginning of 2 Samuel. We're going to meet Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4.4. But before I start reading, let me just mention, again, a minor character does not mean that he's not important. And although he's disabled, this is not the point. We'll see. Rather, it's all about grace. And Mephibosheth gives us an excellent illustration of God's grace. We read, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Well, this is referring to the uh, death of Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa at the very end of 1 Samuel, and the distressing news leads to his nurse dropping him. It, it reminds us a bit of in the book of Judges, uh, where the death of Eli follows on his hearing a battle report, the battle report that his sons were dead and that the ark had been captured. Uh, presumably she can't control it. I doubt she dropped him deliberately. But as a result, he becomes lame in both feet. She is escaping probably potential assassins. See, there's going to be a change in government. Saul is dead. Jonathan's dead. His other son, uh, sons are dead. And Mephibosheth could technically be a claimant to the throne. And it's quite common even today in many countries, and very common in biblical times, for potential rivals to all be knocked out. We see this not only in the book of Kings, we see it in the book of Judges. And so maybe she's simply trying to escape assassins. The source of his medical condition was human error. Some people are born blind. They've never known the pleasure of being able to see, although they may compensate in other areas, for example, developing acute hearing, still they're missing something. They're missing sight. But that's quite different from those who could see perfectly well, but were then blinded perhaps in an acid attack. We read about these more and more in the news. When it's done at the hands of someone else, is different when it just seems to have happened uh, randomly or something we're born with. Some people are born with heart problems. I had a friend who had heart problems and 
He had to take medication for the heart. And he told me the first time we really spent time together, he said, this medication is so strong that I will die young. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's knocking out my liver. It's slowly destroying my liver. And sure enough, um, last time I talked to him was three or four days before he died. He was in great spirits, um, very engaged with other people. He knew he was about to die. He'd known it for a long time. Not a hint of bitterness at all. That's quite different to the person who's given decades of his life to a company. And because someone ignored safety codes, the employee has breathed in asbestos. And after 20 years, he's fighting cancer and he's going to die young and leave behind a young widow. That's different when someone else does it to you. Well, in the case of Mephibosheth, eventually he probably couldn't even remember this. It says he was only five years old. So by the time we meet him in the next um, scripture, perhaps he couldn't even remember being able to walk without assistance or crutches. It is quite young. But Mephibosheth, as we'll see, is an image of grace, and not just for medical situations. I hope you'll be able to to see the, the breadth of application that's possible here to physical conditions, mental health issues, trauma, could be uh, PTSD, or uh, perhaps flashbacks from abuse, or just sin, because sin cripples us. Uh, let's open our minds and and consider the range of options for how we apply these principles. Now let's get into um, our text. We're jumping ahead from 2 Samuel 4 all the way to chapter 9. And this is uh, David wanting to do something nice for Jonathan. Remember, they had a very close relationship. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am, your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodavar. Okay, I'll just comment right there. Uh, Lodabar, which has simply been reproduced in the Hebrew here, um, has a, a, a meaning, or you could say it has no meaning, because lo is none or not, and debar is a word or a thing. Really, no, Lodabar is nothing. So he's staying in a place called no thing, nothing. You know. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Well, David meets Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth falls down. Really, in a less spiritual scenario, David would be uh, killing Mephibosheth. Okay, Saul may not have any sons, but he may have grandsons. And Mephibosheth is an adult here. And Mephibosheth could have made a claim on the throne. And so there is fear. That's why David says, don't fear. But then he explains that it'll show him grace. 
And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is not someone who says, yeah, well, I deserve it. You know, I, my, you know, my grandfather was the king. Rather, he regards himself with deep, abject humility. Notice what he compared himself to. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's continue. Chapter 9, verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. See, David just wanted to do something nice for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth had deserved nothing. He, there was no question of merit. And, you know, just because uh, we have a disability doesn't mean we deserve assistance. It doesn't mean that we deserve to be treated uh, as exceptions. This is all grace. And David sets it up that Mephibosheth will never go hungry. This would obviously apply also to Mephibosheth's family. Um, the land will be tilled. Now, Ziba is a powerful man. I mean, he's got a lot of servants himself. There'll be plenty of food. And then the result is that, as it puts it, he'll always eat at David's table. Now, eating at a king's table in ancient times doesn't mean it's a long king, a long table. Think of uh, Valhalla, all the Vikings uh, sitting around a table, you know, 100 feet long. It's not like that. King's table simply means that uh, you're getting, well, food stamps wouldn't be the right way to put it. But your, your food is provided by the crown. So eating at the king's table could mean you're sitting next to the king. I mean, that's possible. But for most people, would it mean that? It would simply mean that he's feeding you. He's taking care of you. That is provision, not necessarily presence. We continue. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And notice the emphasis there. We've, we already know he's lame. We've read a couple times he's disabled, but it's emphasized here. Grace brings us into the king's presence. Grace makes us sons of the king, daughters of the king. You know, it says Mephibosheth ate like one of the king's sons. Well, he wasn't David's son, a son like Amnon or Absalom. He was uh, his friend Jonathan's son. He was more like an uncle to him. But there's that gracious relationship. And again, Mephibosheth is no longer a boy. He's a grown man. He's a father. Now we fast forward to chapter 16. Things have changed. Because David's son Absalom has staged a coup, David has had to flee Jerusalem. Um, it's a terrible, terribly painful time in, in David's life. We're in the middle of 2 Samuel. This is 16.1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, and that's the summit of the Mount of Olives, if you read earlier, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? 
Ziba said to the king, uh, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So what's going on here? Um, the You have the coup. David had to flee Jerusalem. And now things are calming down. And Ziba comes out and tells David that Mephibosheth has political aspirations. Really? Mephibosheth wants to become the king? Is Ziba speaking the truth? Ziba shows grace to the king and his men, providing donkeys and drink and food. Or does he have an agenda? Is this disingenuous? Well, let's keep reading. And we jump down to verse 24 now, 1624. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Okay, so it's a little suspicious. What's going on? Mephibosheth replies, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So now Mephibosheth has a chance to explain himself. He meets David. So David's not just hearing about Mephibosheth through Ziba. Uh, and Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth claims that Ziba has betrayed him. And this may seem a bit odd. Well, he hadn't trimmed his beard or taken care of his feet or washed. Uh, however many day, days David was away from the capital, that many days, Mephibosheth continued to get dirty and to let his nails grow and so forth. And that shows not um, a state of rejoicing. You know, he's jubilant that he's going to have a shot at being the king or moving up the ladder. It shows that he was mourning. It shows that he's distraught at what's happened, what's happened to David. And so that's a bit of empirical evidence, you could say, that um, he's honest and that, in fact, Ziba has betrayed him. And it is a betrayal. A betrayal is a painful, painful thing. As Mephibosheth says, he was deceived and slandered. I'm sure all of us have experienced at some point uh, having been deceived by people that we trusted or being slandered, being misrepresented. And it's one thing to be misrepresented a little bit, but it's another thing when the rumor gets legs and more and more people believe it. How do we react when that happens to us? You know, Mephibosheth is, is gracious. He's surprising. Now we wonder, is Ziba speaking the truth? Could it be that Mephibosheth did want to become the king? I don't personally think so, but I don't think I could prove it from the scriptures. And Mephibosheth says, actually, uh, you know, I don't need anything. I'm just happy to see you alive again, David. And David says, okay, we'll divide everything now between Ziba and Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, no, let him take it all. 
this is kind of, um, you know, people who read the books of Samuel would also read the book of Kings. It's one continuous narrative. And this would remind them of what will happen soon in the life of David's son, King Solomon. Because in 1 Kings 3.26, remember the two prostitutes uh, and there's a baby, one of their babies dies and they, they come to Solomon and he says, bring me a sword and, you know, cut the living baby in two. You know, it's a way of testing them. And the true mother says, no, no, let her have it. And the, 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 the thief says, no, 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 cut the baby in two. Neither you nor I will have it. So that division of property is redolent of 1 Kings 3. But this willingness to really care for people, to show grace, that characterizes Mephibosheth. This is a really good guy. Let's talk a bit about grace before we go um, into some of the takeaways from this lesson. Well, first, Mephibosheth shows grace. I mean, he shows tremendous grace. He doesn't try to fight his steward. He doesn't get into a big argument. Um, He could have been bitter towards his nurse for that matter. I mean, that's why he needed, that's why he was in this position uh, of subordination, uh, because he was disabled. But he doesn't seem to be bitter towards the nurse who dropped him or even towards Ziba for betraying him. He models a better way. He received grace, and therefore it seems he shows grace. Now, notice the lines of grace in the story. David shows grace to Mephibosheth. I mean, he showed grace to Jonathan, but Jonathan is dead, so he chose Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth actually is showing grace now towards Ziba. And, you know, not saying, no, David, he's a traitor, put him in jail, but no, we'll divide things. I'll be okay, and you'll be okay. He seems to be easygoing about it. Just an amazing attitude. But this I've seen in the uh, dispositions of a number of people uh, who have had disabilities. A few months ago, I was watching a movie on an airplane. The movie was called Delt. And Delt is about a what's called a card mechanic, someone who is just stunningly good with card tricks and doing impressive things with cards. His name is Richard Turner. And Richard, when he was in grade school, went blind. Uh, but he was always fascinated by card tricks. And even when he became completely blind, he was still able to do these incredible tricks. In fact, his goal um, in most of his career was to sit in front of people at a table or he would travel around and do a show. And he would look at them, you know, surmising where their eyes were, I guess, from their voice. And he would ask them questions and tell them to, you know, turn this card over and pick one and the kinds of things that card magicians do, card mechanics. And his goal was that they would never even know he was blind. He was so good that you, you would have no clue. Near uh, the end of the film, he's changing his mind. He's realizing that it's a more powerful story if they know his weakness. But it takes a lot of convincing before he becomes very open about that. He was blind, and yet he admits that it's probably his blindness that enabled him to push so hard. Uh, This guy spent like 12 hours a day shuffling cards and practicing. Um, It's probably his blindness that has made him uh, successful and given him this amazing life. I think of a friend of mine who has multiple sclerosis, who thanks God every day because he's been able to see the Lord in a different way and to see others and their weaknesses in a different way because of that. Recently, I spent time with a Christian leader out West in the United States, middle-aged guy, diabetes, and yet he's such a gracious guy. Sometimes, could it not be the case that weaknesses, that disabilities, 
can make us better people. I know most people waste their suffering, but it's not always that way. When we lived in Washington for 10 years, I remember a sister there in our ministry. She was a one-legged sister. When she was a little girl, she had been wounded in a drive-by shooting, and the doctors couldn't save her leg. And so she had been limping ever since. One-legged sister, but such grace, such a loving person. And so disability doesn't need to ruin our lives, to make us sour, to make us bitter. It could actually make us better. It could make us even better. You know, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the, the way that suffering can actually end up being a ministry. Because we have empathy, we understand it's an opportunity to see God, to show God, to connect with others. And maybe that's the case in your life. You need to think more about your ministry. Read 2 Corinthians 1 and don't feel sorry for yourself. Okay, I've got a few more things to share um, uh, in takeaways before we wrap up. Um, Most of this is pretty obvious, but please think about it. First, life isn't always fair. Actually, it usually isn't fair. It's not always fair. That's the reality. The Bible doesn't pretend otherwise. Second, the point is not to receive justice or that even there has to be equality. Uh, In Mephibosheth's case, the point wasn't to receive healing, but to draw near to God. And he serves in this story for us as a model of grace, grace received, grace dispensed. We really see God in Mephibosheth. A third uh, thing that occurs to me is that we're all needy. We may have been disabled by damage inflicted by others. We may have disabled ourselves, you know, self-inflicted acts. Uh, We could be handicapped by ignorance or maybe some opportunities we've missed in our childhood. We may be crippled by sin, and we're all crippled by sin. We're all needy. So this means that when we read the story of Mephibosheth, uh, to some extent, I think we should be identifying with him. Fourthly, let's show grace. Mephibosheth lets it slide. Right when David is now talking again with Mephibosheth, and Ziba makes one claim, and Mephibosheth says another, and David says, "I'll divide it all." Mephibosheth is fine. In fact, he says, "No, just give it all to Ziba." Uh, David, you know, actually does want to be a more a bit more fair than that. Let things slide. That's not always my attitude. A few years ago, a brother had been very wronged by um, certain, let's say this involved money. He'd been involved, uh, wronged by banks and by uh, people with money, people who had deceived him. And entering into a lawsuit, he probably could have won. He was definitely in the right. He could have got uh, it was a huge amount of money back. Um, and he talked with me. We talked a number of times, what should he do? And at that time, actually, I encouraged him to enter into litigation, you know, try to, you know, try to get it back. Um, you can, you know, if it's not going to hurt anybody, then why don't you try to get it back? I'm so glad he didn't decide to take my advice. He decided to cut his losses, not to expose his family um, and his friends to the ugliness that would go with litigation. And, you know, I think it's the right decision because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What's so horrible about giving up your rights, even about taking a financial hit? And so the brother learned through this. I learned through this. You know, stop giving financial advice. Well, I just need to have more respect for what what the scriptures say, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. My natural tendency is not to let things slide. Um, 
too often. I say too much. I give too much feedback. I bring things up and don't let them go. And I'm kind of uh, positioning myself for a better outcome. Showing grace means letting things slide, not being so controlling. And the fifth thing, let me say the first four. Life isn't always fair. The point's not to receive justice, right? It, it's, to, it's to have grace. Uh, third, we're all needy. You know, we, we're all Mephibosheth. We should show grace to others, and that will mean letting things slide, even when we're in the right. And fifthly, care for the needy, the infirm, the disabled. It's not the main point of these passages, but it's certainly in there. Finally, Mephibosheth is quite a mouthful. I'm pretty good with Hebrew names, and, and sometimes my tongue gets all twisted. We learn from a parallel account in uh, First Chronicles that his name was Meribaal, or Meribaal. And Baal, of course, is a false god, a false god in the land of Canaan. And so this seems to have been his original name, and it was changed to Mephibosheth. Boshet means shame. And there are a number of names in the Hebrew Bible uh, where, I mean, it's quite an indictment that Jews would name their kids after Baal, or Baal would be in the name. Uh, but he's called Mephibosheth, which means uh from the mouth, yeah, from the mouth of shame, something like that. M from P is mouth from the mouth of shame, and that is, is kind of a, a judgment on him. Perhaps his original name was Mary Baal. Well, I will say this: there is no shame. There's shame in idolatry, yes, but there's no shame in being needy, no shame in being disabled, nor in receiving help from others. And that's why Mephibosheth inspires me, and I hope he inspires you. Because remember, Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. We receive grace, we give grace. And I think the story of Mephibosheth can help you and me to do much better in that area.